we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome back to Politics Mad. It's been a really, really busy week in politics, domestically and internationally. We've got a lot to talk about, but uh, yeah, it's been pretty busy. So um, how's it been for you, Roll? Uh, not too bad. Uh, quite juxtaposed to the news agenda in that it's been quite quiet. For me, I haven't been working that much. And um, like most of our other peers, I've been applying quite a lot to different jobs um, uh, one in particular one that was posted on one of our group chats, our university group chats that you'll be knowing of, was a, uh, a job at Falkland Islands TV for a year uh, in quite in the very remote Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic, of course, uh, which is either a sign of my desperation or a sign of my love of remote wildernesses, however you read it. How about you, Ollie? How was your week? Well, I'm not sure I could handle a remote life in the Falklands, but no, I had a similar moment where I had a sort of a, a panic where I emailed as many broadcasters as I could, begging for anything I could get in the studios, just to see what I could get, really, if it, if it was even a bit of shadowing. Like, even though we've even though we've graduated now, anything I'm happy with. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hard times indeed. But that means that we can devote more time to the podcast, so it's not all doom and gloom. Happy days. But yeah, so we'll kick off with um, what's been happening with Jeremy Corbyn, because obviously in my last episode, he was suspended, and uh, well, the episode before that he was suspended, I lose track. But in this episode, he's back again. He's been readmitted into the Labour Party, but not the Parliamentary Labour Party. And here's where the controversy is. So basically... An NEC disputes panel, which is a panel of five people who are members of the Labour National Executive Committee, unanimously decided to let Jeremy Corbyn back into the Labour Party with a reminder of Labour values. So sort of a light slap on the wrist. But because of this, a number of Jewish groups inside and outside the Labour Party, like the Jewish Labour Movement, the Jewish Board of Deputies, expressed outrage at the prospect of Corbyn being readmitted. And they said it undermined any progress that had been made under Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer put out a statement that evening and then the next day announced that Corbyn would not be readmitted back into the Parliamentary Labour Party. So he wasn't having the whip restored. This basically means for a maximum of three months, he is still suspended from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Now, some Labour MPs, among them Margaret Hodge, allegedly threatened to resign the whip in protest if Corbyn was returned the whip. And some people say, well, this reinforced Keir Starmer's decision. Um, much criticism was put on the fact that this was done by the old NEC processes. So that panel that readmitted him... A lot of people said, well, the EHRC report into anti-Semitism basically said you need an independent process to decide things like this. And Corbyn was uh, readmitted under the old process. So some people have said, well, if this three-month suspension is long enough, then perhaps Corbyn will be retried under that new process once it's set up. But it's really heightened Labour's internal civil war, really. Yes, it sounds like it has. I remember when... Uh Mr. Starmore was quite quick after the NEC made their decision to say 
look, I'm 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 the leader and I'm not giving him back the whip. He can sit in Parliament. He can be a member of the Labour Party, but he's not part of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And I guess he didn't really have a choice in terms of his position as the new leader of the Labour Party to make that decision, because if he didn't make that decision, if he allowed Jeremy Corbyn to sit with Labour in Parliament again, he would have lost all credibility within the Jewish Labour movement that he's actually going to tackle anti-Semitism. However, on the other hand, because of what he's done now, the left wing of the party are somewhat, with some a large amount of evidence, saying, well, you said I'm going to fully subscribe to the process. The process has now returned the verdict that Jeremy Corbyn needs to come back. And you're saying you don't respect it. So I think we're going to see, not see the end of this. And I think you're right in that. Um, it's going to be a process of waiting for the new NEC complaints process and kind of retrying him under that, so to speak. Yeah, and it's really heightened Labour's internal civil war, really, because you know the usual suspects from the far left of the party, the socialist campaign group, big union leaders like Len McCluskey, they've all come out and criticised the decision. Apparently, Jeremy Corbyn's lawyers are now involved, I think. And just this week, actually, the Labour chief whip, Nick Brown, has requested a full apology and a retraction of Corbyn's previous comments. Uh, just today, actually, um, in an NEC meeting, the far left members staged a walkout over the election of uh, the chair of the NEC, who they say should have gone to uh, a far left member. And they've now changed that. And I think now Margaret Beckett, a long-standing Labour MP, is now the chair of the National Executive Committee. So there's a lot of internal stuff going on in the party right now. Uh, One of the unions, the Bakers Union, I believe, have um, said they may even disaffiliate from the Labour Party. They're going to be talking discussions about that in the upcoming weeks. It's really kicking off. I mean, most people won't know about all this, but for internal Labour politics, it's all really significant. But in the meantime we'll move on to the government because Boris Johnson has basically tried to relaunch things after Dominic Cummings left last week. And the first thing he tried with that was with his new green plan. So this new sustainability plan to try and change Britain's economy. And the big policy people picked out of that was the ban on combustion engine sales by 2030, which basically means any brand new cars that are built after 2030 have to be electric and well actually no so by 2030 they have to be electric but hybrids can still be sold and made up to 2035 so that's quite a radical change considering this country doesn't exactly have a huge number of electric charging points at the moment yeah quite radical and if these policies are all taken at point value face value they do represent a renewed commitment to green issues. And actually, it was an Economist article piece I was reading on this topic, which really kind of outlines how important this is for Boris Johnson's prime ministership, in that it's it's one of the few things that still remains within the kind of Cameronite Tory party in the present-day Tory party. I mean, they've kind of ditched the social liberalism. They've ditched the not talking about Europe. They've ditched the talk about the deficit. I mean, under Theresa May, it wasn't mentioned at all. And Boris Johnson has presided under the highest deficit levels of uh, the government in peacetime. So this is one of the few things that remains from that David Cameron era. And it's inter- it will be interesting to see how much they stick to this. Because if they do, it's quite an ambitious programme. 
definitely is. I mean, some of the other pledges, I mean, actually stick from the last manifesto, I believe. So, um, the pledge to quadruple offshore wind power, which is quite a big one. Obviously, there are quite a few offshore wind farms currently around the UK, but this would increase it significantly. I think that's going to happen by 2030, if you believe that. So, in the next 10 years, um, moves to boost hydrogen production. Um, they said they'd build one town entirely heated by hydrogen by the end of the decade. Obviously, hydrogen is a very clean fuel because when you burn hydrogen, you get uh, the byproduct of water and you get hydrogen from water. So it, it's quite a good renewable source if it can be properly utilised. And for me, that was the most interesting bit of the uh, details proposed because the wind was kind of expected britain's already a fairly produces a lot of uh, energy from wind and it's a quite an easy sell especially on offshore no one really cares about it you can't see them and the combustor uh, the um, ban on new diesel and petrol cars in 2030 again not that too surprising considering the ban was already on 2040 but it's the bet on hydrogen power which is what the the most interesting i found because it's not really that much of a mix within our uh, energy policies right now you only hear about it very fleetingly you know in london there's a few buses that run on hydrogen fuel cells but other than that it's, it's very much a low-key sort of solution towards the climate crisis and Britons are making a massive bet on it. Well, if this um, new statement is to be believed, they're going to make a massive bet on it. And no country has really come out that much for hydrogen. So whether this pays off will be almost of natu natural importance to Britain, almost like um, France's massive investment in nuclear power 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, and there's a bit of nuclear power on this as well, it should be said. Apparently half a billion is going towards uh, small uh, nuclear reactors across the country. Um, and then there's uh, the usual kind of stuff really about insulating homes, planting more trees, carbon capture initiatives. So the sort of usual stuff you'd expect from a big green scheme like this, but obviously the big stuff, as we say, is the hydrogen, is the electric cars, and what they plan to do with that. Because presumably... With something like electric cars, it's a massive infrastructure requirement as well. It's to do with roads, it's to do with charging points. You know, this isn't just a set of, oh, we're going to do this by this year. This is going uh, to require some heavy investment in other areas as well. Indeed, and certainly within London, you can already see those changes starting to be made. Uh, electric charging points in various parking spots uh, and various shopping malls and car parks and the like. But as we often know, the country is not London. London almost represents its own little country. So getting this rolled out to, say, the West Midlands or the Northwest will be a much harder choice. So what were the other main bits of this so-called relaunch, Ollie? Talk us through the other main points. Well, the other big thing this week, and we're talking big money here, you know, not just this green plan, this defence spending we're hearing about now. So the government have pledged £16.5 billion over the next four years. Boris Johnson says it was designed to create hundreds of thousands of jobs and specifically 40,000 new roles. So this is one of the largest increases in defence spending for years. The Ministry of Defence has received a multi-year settlement because equipping our armed forces requires long-term investment and our national security in 20 years' time will depend on decisions we take today. I've done this in the teeth of the pandemic amid every other demand on our resources, 
because the defence of the realm and the safety of the British people must come first. Um, Labour welcomed it, uh, which is you know quite different under Keir Starmer now. It's hard to imagine Jeremy Corbyn welcoming an increase in defence spending, but he did question where the money was going to come from because... Here's the thing, we're now entering the largest recession since the Great Depression, and we're in a situation now where everyone's saying, you know, where's the money going to come from? Is it going to come from higher taxation? Is it going to come from more borrowing? Is it going to be public sector cuts? But these are huge levels of investment we're seeing here. So people are questioning, why now do you want this level of investment? Uh, Is it fueled by a desire to reassert our place in the world? Uh, something perhaps with Joe Biden's re-election and the need to show, prove to the US and other countries that we are still a top player? Um, Is it due to the fact that this will create jobs if properly implemented? Uh, Is this an investment to grow? Is this a a rejection of the kinds of austerity policies we've seen over the last 10 years? So we're going to have to wait for this to play out, see how it's going to be done. But it can't be overstated. This is a huge investment. It is. And obviously the context of it being that under the coalition government led by David Cameron, defence was one of the key areas that suffered a lot of cuts. You know, before in 2010, our defence spending was over 2% of GDP. I think it was something almost close to 3% of GDP. And by the end of that period, by 2015, 2016, you're looking at about 2% of GDP. So that's a massive real terms cut. And this is a massive real terms increase that's signalled by Boris Johnson. On the question of why, it's it's tricky to know, really. I mean, I think Boris Johnson is, as we have noted on previous episodes of the podcast, an optimist. He's a person who believes that Britain has had an absolutely spanking great history. He believes that Britain is a country that is a global power and should and does use its influence in the world for good. And this really seeks to almost res- reverse the five years under the coalition government and those defence spending cuts. But yes, as you say, I think it's absolutely amazing that certainly, well, within the Labour Party, there hasn't been much pushback in this as under Keir Starmer. He hasn't said anything about it. But even among other commentators, this has really gone under the radar. It has not been mentioned that much by the major broadcasters, even though it is a phenomenal amount of money that's going into the defence. It's it's absolutely crazy. I mean, you know, if you think it's a good thing, fine. If you think it's a bad thing, fine. But you need to clearly discuss it because whether a good or bad, it is a sizable change from the status quo and is a lot of money. Yeah, and I think part of that may be due to the fact that our economy is actually heavily reliant on our defence exports. You know, we're we have an incredibly large um, arms market that we manufacture. We have a we have quite a large pharmaceutical market, which can so often be linked to defence spending. But one thing that really surprises me about all this: a year ago, we heard that Dominic Cummings was going to be reviewing this defence spending in the UK because he felt that a huge amount of funding was wasted in the defence industry. Now, I'm curious now if that's still conservative policy, if they still plan to look at that. Because with a huge investment like this, you have to wonder if they still intend to review how money is spent in that sector. Whatever happens with this announcement on defence in the next year or two, we've grown accustomed to money being dished out throughout this calendar year. That's only going to last for a certain amount of time. And I'm actually surprised it's lasted as long as it has until now. So 
we should view this with a bit of skepticism, I think, going into the future, because you are right, the time will come. To coin a phrase, the magic money tree will have to be watered, shall we say, or trimmed down, maybe, perhaps that's the uh, better quote. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to hear a lot more about where this money's going in defence, but also how we're going to pay for it, or not, or borrow for it. Yeah. So another thing that happened with Boris Johnson this week, uh, his relaunch took a little bit of a hit when he was recorded in a meeting with Conservative MPs saying that Scottish devolution had been, quote, a disaster. Now, understandably, this caused quite a lot of anger among the Scottish National Party, and Boris Johnson was later forced to clarify his comments. But that wasn't before Keir Starmer criticised him in PMQs for it. And you can hear both of those here. Mr Speaker, devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is one of the proudest achievements of the last Labour government. Until now, whatever our disagreements, there's been a very broad consensus about devolution. So why did the Prime Minister tell his MPs this week that Scottish devolution is, in his words, a disaster? Prime Minister... Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I think uh, what has unquestionably been a disaster is the way in which the Scottish Nationalist Party have taken and used devolution as a, as a means not to improve the lives of their constituents, not to address their, uh, their health concerns, not to improve uh, education in Scotland, but constantly, and I know this is actually a point of view that is shared uh, by the right honourable gentleman who leads uh, for the opposition. Uh, but constantly to campaign for the breakup of our country and to turn devolution, uh, otherwise a sound policy from which I myself personally uh, benefited by uh, when I was running London, but turn devolution into a mission uh, to break up the UK. It seems to me that that was a massive own goal for various reasons. One, the Tories are now, at least officially, a party that heartily supports devolution, not only on the national scale, but also on the on the local regional scale. It was the Tories who set up the Metro mayors that we've been talking about so much nationally due to the COVID crisis. So to give a statement like that is quite damning. Also, it's easy fruit for the SNP. They can claim, look, they Britain doesn't really care about devolution. It doesn't really care about the Scottish government. It just wants to have everything under its control. We are muzzled and we need only independence will solve that out. Now, I mean, some Tory grandees said, oh, it's not actually devolution he was calling a disaster. It was just the SNP's usage of devolution. But as far as I'm concerned, the damage has already been done. It's not been interpreted like that. It's been interpreted as the soundbite was, which was it's a disaster, period. And I can't see that helping the prime minister or certainly the union. Yeah, and speaking of further damage in government this week, the final thing which probably did the government more damage was the Pretty Patel bullying report. Now, we knew this was coming for a long time because of previous resignations by civil servants, um, but basically this report found that Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, had unintentionally breached ministerial code with her behaviour towards civil servants. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson chose to reject the findings, and has chosen not to remove her from her position. Now, Sir Alex Allen, who wrote this report, has quit in protest 
that the Prime Minister has not taken firmer action. And a source actually told the BBC that Boris Johnson had requested that the report be palatable. So there's a lot of questions being asked about how seriously this report was taken by the Prime Minister. Uh, Priti Patel later put out a statement. She said, any upset I have caused was completely unintentionally. She apologised, but not specifically for bullying. So she said it, it, if her actions caused any uh, distress, basically, she said she is sorry if she has upset people, not for upsetting them. So it was an apology, but it wasn't sort of the precise apology some people had called for. Uh, this is actually her second scandal, obviously, because she's broken ministerial code before. Last time she was forced to resign by Theresa May because she held you know, secret talks with Israeli ministers and had to quit as International Development Secretary. But the difference is this time Boris Johnson has let her off the hook because of the unintentional aspect to it. And obviously this is a kind of archetypal British ministerial scandal. There have been so many starting probably, uh, well, obviously starting before this, but with the first famous one of the Profumo affair in the 1960s, all the way now down to the present day. But one has to note that the number and frequency of scandals, certainly within the last three years of Conservative leadership, has been rather high. And from a personal note, the, the Patel um, fiasco is quite clearly quite damaging. But the question becomes, when do these things start to become so damaging as to warrant a kind of sleaze label, as the Tories were branded with in the 1990s, which really turned the public off the Tory party? Is that going to happen? And if so, when? Because if it's not going to happen anytime soon, I, I don't think it's ever going to happen. This is serious stuff. The report found that she bullied people, whether it's unintentional or not people online have largely been saying that doesn't really matter if you bully someone the end of effect is you've bullied someone you can't do that in any role let alone as a minister you've broken the ministerial code that's how serious it is yet no pushback she stays in and there's no public fury or limited public fury do you think that will change it's difficult to say because you mentioned the 1990s where obviously there are a lot of ministerial scandals and resignations but i think the the outrage that came from that was a sort of culmination of the 1990s period where the Conservatives have been criticised for other things as well and they've been in power for so long that there was a sort of public fatigue around them and obviously Labour at the time led by Tony Blair seemed quite new and refreshed and there was a an alternative that seemed quite favourable so I think there were lots of factors there but as you say in the last few years there's been quite a few ministerial resignations and if it continues like this, and if the economic situation continues to deteriorate, and if Keir Starmer continues his sort of revitalisation of the Labour Party and this factional stuff doesn't get too heated, we may begin to see greater public animosity towards the government. But that's all speculation at the moment. It's impossible to say until we see it play out. I mean, a lot of this stuff said in hindsight, really. It is. And perhaps that's a good point to move on to the international section. Today, we're going to focus on two things. The US as the rolling saga over Mr. Trump and his potential concession of power goes on. And also Ethiopia, which I sh we should have covered really last week, but because of the Nagorno-Karabakh war ending, we decided not to. We'll go over that and explain for you, our listeners, exactly what caused 
the recent conflict there and how it's likely to play out. But first, let's start with the US. And the key top line here from this week, actually this happening yesterday, is that Mr. Trump has accepted the decision by Emily W. Murphy, who's the administrator of the General Services Administration, to allow a transition to proceed. Now, what that means is essentially that the GSA, the General Services Administration, which is the government body that facilitates transfers of power, will now give briefings, whether on an intelligence, coronavirus or the like, to the incoming Biden administration, allowing them basically to hit the ground running. Now, this was a key sore point with Biden supporters and the team because they can't really get started on the work of preparing for government if they're not allowed to access A, public money, and B, that information that they need to know, say, something on the coronavirus, stuff about vaccinations, what's the plan there? However, Mr. Trump is still contesting the election. I mean, his Twitter feed, if any of you do want to go onto it, kind of showcases that really well. A majority of his lawsuits that either him or other Republicans have lodged, have already been thrown out, it should be say, or settled or withdrawn. And, of course, he's still maintaining that line that he didn't lose. Here is his most recent pronouncement on what he thought happened during the election. Big Pharma ran millions of dollars of negative advertisements against me during the campaign, which I won, by the way, but, you know, we'll find that out. Uh, Almost 74 million votes. We had Big Pharma against us. We had the media against us. We had Big Tech against us. Uh, We had a lot of dishonesty against us. So it's quite notable that the GSA acknowledged the quote apparent winner, which is quite cagey language. It's not a very definitive statement and is largely emblematic of the fact that Trump is still resisting. He might have given this concession, but he's slightly resisting. He hasn't conceded the election as a whole. Yeah, and I found it quite interesting when he tweeted last night to announce this, that he made it sound like he'd been forced into it and that the head of the GSA had been bullied by people on social media. And he sort of said, oh, he has to do this because for various reasons. But as you say, it wasn't particularly definitive from him. But Biden's transition team will obviously be very happy with this. But on another note, they've made some interesting announcements in the last few days. They have, yes, and even without the help of the GSA to have a smooth transition, Mr. Biden can still go about appointing his new team, which is what he's done in earnest. It's very likely, although I believe hasn't been confirmed at the time of recording, that Janet Yellen, the former chairman of the Fed, which is America's central bank, will be named as Treasury Secretary. She'll be the first woman Treasury Secretary ever in US history and was quite an important central banker during the time of President Obama. The president-elect is also expected to name Jake Sullivan, another close to Aida Viz, as national security advisor, and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, a 35-year foreign service veteran, as his ambassador to the UN. But the most interesting announcement is Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State. He is a man who has much foreign policy experience and was, it should be said, the undersecretary of state during Obama's time. So he is basically the number two at the State Department. So he clearly knows what he does. He's clearly a continuity candidate in terms of what Biden did with Mr. Obama. And he's, I think it's fair to say, he, Mr. Biden's gone for the experienced hand here. 
You can also see that in the appointment of John Kerry as his new special climate envoy. Obviously, John Kerry is the former Secretary of State under Obama, was the Democratic candidate for president in 2004. And this is a fairly new role as well. So that perhaps shows Biden's commitment to other areas like climate change. Indeed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But it's notable the fact that he chose such an important figure. You can't really get more important than John Kerry, former Democratic uh, presidential candidate, as you said, but also the Secretary of State for the last years of the Obama administration. He signed the Paris Climate Agreement quite noticeably in 2015 for the US. So a very big statement on the climate from, from Mr. Biden there. Yeah, and it's probably, as you said, there's a number of safe pairs of hands here. Yes, that's the notable thing. They have a lot of experience between them, and all of them are kind of united by one really strong thread, which is that they're multilateralists, which, given the unilateralist approach under the Trump presidency, the idea being that you deal with countries one by one by one, and you don't really garner international coalitions to fight things like either wars or climate change. You just do it by country-to-country negotiations. That is a clear hallmark of, I guess, American orthodoxy in foreign policy. But more importantly, right now, it's the main ideological backing for foreign policy in the Democrat Party. Now, Mr. Blinken, is, who's 58, as we've said, is a former deputy secretary of state under President Barack Obama. He's been in within foreign policy matters for a very long time. In all the most important decisions of that presidency, think about the assassination of Osama bin Laden and that very famous picture uh, with Mr. Obama, Miss Clinton, etc. and others in the room watching it live. He was there. He was always been there during important things like that. And it's going to be quite hard, I think, to change Trump's domestic policy, partially because of domestic opposition in Congress, but also because it's not an area that the president has unrestricted access to. However, foreign policy largely is. Presidents kind of dictate foreign policy by decree, almost. Not There's not many laws passed on foreign policy, which, given these announcements, is something that's probably going to change rather rapidly to the orthodox view of American power in the world, if you will, or certainly as the Democrats conceive it. Yeah, and let's look at foreign policy more specifically here, because there are a number of things that aren't going to change under a Biden presidency. So what do you think we're going to see in, say, the first year or so? Because obviously they're going to be rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement as soon as he's uh, inaugurated. But what else do you think we'll see from his appointees? Well, much like, as you say, he's going to rejoin the Paris Agreement, we're going to see a resumption of American support for the rules-based system. And what the rules-based system is, is effectively all of the global institutions that try to foster international cooperation on a host of issues, like the Paris Agreement does for the environment, will be buttressed by the US. They won't be attacked as they constantly were during Mr. Trump's time, and they may be rejoined if Mr. Trump actually decided to leave them. So we can expect reinvigorated support for the UN and NATO, which Trump has had you know, very lukewarm feelings on both of those organizations. Mr. Trump said he would withdraw from the WHO, which actually America hasn't done because of a certain timeout clause. But Mr. Biden will obviously be going back on that. He's going to basically give in his pitch to the world, America is back. We are going to support all of the institutions in the world. And we are not going to waver in that support. And the other kind of plank of that is re-engagement with spurned allies. 
a lot of foreign leaders did like Trump. However, America's oldest allies, people like Canada and the European states of France, Germany, not notably Britain, but most European countries, really were affected badly by the Trump presidency. Their relationship with the US suffered massively. We can expect Mr. Biden and probably the new Secretary of State to go on an international blitz. We can expect them to be popping up in a lot of places, probably in Europe, in Canada and in Asia, to reaffirm America's commitment to those regions. And obviously there's been a lot of chatter about China as well, because obviously Donald Trump had a very interesting relationship with China through his trade war. Um, you know, some people say that may be one of Trump's most enduring legacies. We'll see how Biden deals with the Chinese differently. But what more do you think we'll see from that? China is probably the most interesting area of American foreign policy, mainly because it will be one of Mr. Trump's most enduring legacies. In 2016, most American foreign policy wonks would have viewed Russia as America's main rival. That has now been undoubtedly replaced with China. And this is on both sides of the aisle. It's one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats both agree on. Here's what Mr. Biden had to say on the issue of China back in February during a debate for Democratic candidates for the presidency. I spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had by the time we left office. This is a guy who is, has, doesn't have a Democratic with a small d bone in his body. This is a guy who is a thug who in fact has a million Uyghurs in reconstruction camps, meaning concentration camps. This is a guy who you see what's happening right now in, in Hong Kong. And this is a guy who I was able to convince should join the international agreement at the Paris Agreement because guess what? They need to be involved. You can cooperate and you can also dictate exactly what they are. Yeah, and obviously that's really damning and strong. But I guess considering all of that, do you think these two men are going to get along? Well, as he alluded to in his speech there, US-China policy is going to become more flexible, I think. We're still going to have a tough line on China from America, so that's not going to change. Expect the tariffs that Mr. Trump put on China to remain. They're quite a useful bargaining chip and could be used as part of a wider deal if any is struck with China, especially the sanctions on Huawei. Mr. Trump has actually been rather effective in getting various countries through a mixture of haranguing them and pleading with them to put sanctions on Huawei and not allow them to construct parts of their 5G network. Mr. Biden's, again, not likely to ditch that, although he might tone down the bellicose language somewhat. But on other matters, there'll certainly be enhanced cooperation. The Trump line was that they're an enemy, we don't talk to them at all, basically. But Mr. Biden's is probably more nuanced, as he alluded to in his speech. On climate change, America has to, has to negotiate with China. They are the two biggest polluters in the world by far. If they're not in the same boat, anything the world does largely doesn't matter. America will still also probably continue to speak out about Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Again, he mentioned Xinjiang and the Uyghurs in detention camps in his speech there. And in a sense, China looks upon this all quite poorly. There were some rumblings in China that they quite liked President Trump, even though he had really shifted America's attention towards China, mainly because under the idea that Mr. Trump was very erratic and actually damaging for US interests as a whole. So expect continued difficult relations. It's probably one of the only issues that has support amongst Democrats and Republicans. So Biden is more likely than not 
to really be able to hold the strong line against China. Right then, so moving on from the US, let's move on to Ethiopia, because they're going through something of a crisis right now. So do you want to explain that a bit, and also explain a little bit about Ethiopia as a country, because there may be some people who don't know a huge amount about it. This is certainly a topic I wanted to touch on last week when it was really in the headlines, but this conflict is still going on and we can still talk about it now. So firstly, an outline of Ethiopia. I mean, it's a mega diverse country. It's got a population of over 100 million. Geographically, it's situated in the Horn of Africa region in the east of Africa. Now, the key thing to understand about Ethiopia is that it is a federation. Like many African countries, they're not really nation states. England is made up of English people, France, French people, Germany, Germans. With Ethiopia, there is no one ethnic group, Ethiopians, just like there is no one ethnic group of Kenyans. They're a collection of ethnicities, the Tigrayans, who are at the centre of this crisis, but also the Oromians, the Amharas, Somalis, lots of different groups. Now, Ethiopia is different to most African nations. It wasn't a colonial nation, other than a small period when Italy occupied it between 1935 and 1941. It had a very charismatic emperor, Haile Selassie, who many people will know due to his uh, associations with Rastafarianism. He's the kind of central figure in that religion, who was deposed in the 1970s by a communist junta. And they were kind of ousted after that during the end of the Cold War. After that, Ethiopia has been somewhat stable, somewhat not stable for the past 30 years. However, in the last 10 years, it has recorded really high levels of economic growth. Yet it still remains disunited on a number of factors, notably, as we're seeing right now, ethnicity. Okay, then. So why has the prime minister effectively waged war on the Tigray region then? So this is what this conflict really comes to. Tigray is a northern region that uh, is in Ethiopia and it borders Eritrea. And Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed set out his argument basically in a speech to the nation on why he was essentially invading this region. Let's hear what he had, he had to say. The federal government had every right to deploy federal security forces and use force in order to apprehend those implicated in massive corruption and gross human rights violation. So basically the trigger to all of these events was what he described in the statement as a poorly run region. This is Tigray, where the TPLF, that basically the Tigrayans, main political force and governing body attacked a local army camp which housed federal soldiers. Now this was really the trigger for a lot of tensions that had been ongoing between the Tigrayan government and the central government. That's for a variety of reasons. I mean the Tigrayans had previously been the main power in Ethiopia in the protests two years ago that led to the current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed taking power, who's not a Tigrayan, he's part of the Oromo ethnic group. They were quite perturbed because they'd really held a lot of political power for decades and they'd now lost it. They're clearly not that happy about it. And Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, is knowledgeable that they are not happy about it and are looking in some ways to get one up on the federal government. Okay, then. So who's currently winning in this dispute? Well, it's difficult to say because the region Tigray and also other parts of neighbouring Ethiopia have suffered a total media and internet communications blackout. 
So we've had unverified reports of various things. There's been unverified reports of a massacre happening, of airstrikes by the federal Ethiopian troops on civilian areas in Tigray. But we just simply do not know. It was, it was actually, I was in work in the BBC, and it's, it was really interesting to see the fact that we had very little to report on about what was happening there, other than what the government or the TPLF forces, the Tigrayan forces, were saying. Now, the government says they're quite close to capturing the capital. The end is in sight, was the phrase that the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed used. And the TPLF forces do acknowledge a few towns being taken, but they still say they're holding their own. Now, given the relative military might of the federal government and all of Ethiopia backing it, compared to one of the constituent regions in Ethiopia, it's only really a matter of time that they can hold out. But that matter of time might be possibly years. And the issue now is that there's a massive humanitarian crisis brewing. Will the international community get involved? Will these trails of refugees that are heading off into neighbouring countries increase? Will it spiral out of control, basically? Okay, then, so it's possible it could become a longer war. But you mentioned sort of the geopolitical implications there. So what do you think it could lead to if other countries do get involved? It's quite tricky given the interconnected relationships of the area so i'll try and blitz it as quickly as possible i am conscious of the time here there is a possibility that eritrea which is the state that neighbors ethiopia to the north may get involved and it's actually possible that they're already involved eritrea and ethiopia actually had a war about 20 years ago which was only actually solved two years ago by prime minister abiy ahmed in his peace deal with eritrea and as the TPLF were actually in power during the times of the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, the Eritreans aren't actually that warm towards the Tigrayans. And that's why there have been alleged reports of the TPLF targeting Eritrea, trying to bring them into the war. Amhara also might get involved, which is another region in Ethiopia that borders Tigray. They have also been allegedly targeted by the TPLF forces in a sort of attempt, I guess, to widen the scale of this war. Ethiopia is a regional power in the Horn of Africa, but the African Union, which is another big force in the whole continent of Africa, is increasingly worried about the federal government's actions and is often to mediate it, notably being rejected by the Ethiopian federal government, saying that this is an internal matter, this is a matter of civil unrest, and it's not your business. But as time goes on, this looks less like an internal conflict and more like a full-blown civil war. And as the refugees start to pour out and as the humanitarian crisis becomes worse, that's when the Ethiopian federal government runs the risk of the international community getting involved and this not being the quick victory that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed would have wanted. Right then, so we'll keep track of that and let people know how it progresses. And Hopefully by the next episode, we'll know a little bit more about this country's recession plans because Rishi Sunak's going to be announcing a spending review tomorrow. We may know more about Joe Biden's transition team. But until then, thank you so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.